Singing lead. That's me when I want. Oh, he's singing backup. That's what I want. So here's my money story. Mm. I played drums. I, my story of this particular song I played mm. drums in a church, the United yes. Methodist Church of Wayne. I'm the band leader of this band, Parish Drive. This past Sunday, we played not just your Christian rock songs, but we also did Bell Bottom Blues, for example, by Derek and the Dominoes. Oh. Did you guys open for them back in the day? No. And, um, at the offertory, when they want you to put the money in the plate. That's the offertory. Exactly. Yes. We played this song. And um, after church was over, a woman came up to me and she said, Dave, no. I said, <laughs> no what? And I knew what she was talking about. She said, that was the worst, worst choice of song you ever could have done. I said, wasn't it funny? No. If you if if was, if this was the first time I ever came into this church, I would have I would have walked right out. I said if I, if this was the first time I ever came into the church and I heard a band play this song, I would have stayed. All right. I said I would have thought this was funny. I get it. She goes, the only people who get it are what do you call somebody who doesn't believe? Atheists. Uh, atheists. Wow. So this is Atheist 101 on Brave New Radio, and we are back. We are back. Season five and a half. New year. Doctor Esteban Marconi wow, talking. on campus. Yes. Yes, is right. We've been here a week now. Yes, on the campus of the University of William Patterson. Anything new happening? How are your classes going, Dave? Great, great classes. Really? Keep, That's keep, not what I heard. Except the except for Ashley's class. Uh, um, the personal and who's manager. Ashley? Ashley who? Ashley Veltner, our German engineer behind the glass that does not ah, exist. Yes. yes. What, yeah. what accent was that when I talked like this? I don't know what accent that is. The Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um... <laughs> at the cavern. Exactly. Oh, that was back at Cavern Club, 1962. Ashley, how was your summer? Okay. You good? Ashley Veltner, behind the glass engineer. Yeah, my summer's pretty good. Good. And this is your last year of the University of William Patterson. This is. Excited about it? Yeah. I mean, I'll have to get, like, a big job, I guess. Yeah. You, you're done with summer. You just had your last summer, your last college summer. You know, because... and I spent the entire time working two jobs. There we go. There you go. She had to pay for her blue and green hair. <laughs> yes. That's that's quite an expense. And now she's a Ticketmaster. She got a great internship with our friend Tom from Ticketmaster. Yes. Tom Hefter from Ticketmaster. Listen to that podcast. Hey, Steve, speaking of the podcast, you should listen to Music Biz 101 more. iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you podcast, we're probably there. You should be following us on Instagram, Twitter, and the Facebook 
That's Music Biz 101 WP. And how many podcasts do we have? We have more than 225. Wow. We have more than 235 radio shows, but some never made it to podcast uh, form. Some, uh. some never made it beyond. One of our best shows was with Taylor Dane. Yes. And it never made it past. Oh, I remember that. It didn't. We did it in the afternoon so we could air it the following yep. night. And you blew it. And uh, the, the radio station exploded. So um, that was, they never found the body of that podcast. You know, you want to give thanks with me? Sure. Why don't we give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management? Because with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent and Kith, there's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. <laughs> CPA.com when you're ready. And we should also give thanks to Christine. Vey. Christine. Oi. I'm sorry, you're right. <laughs> you out of practice. Yes. Christine Oi. Oh, sorry, Christine. Oi. Vey, a wealth manager and the president of. Oi. <laughs> Vey Wealth Management. You know, Christine has helped many professionals at the University of William Patterson and all over the world manage their investments to plan out for the retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, if you have questions on anything from investments, portfolio management, or insurance retirement planning, give Christine a call at repeat after me, Ashley, 732. 732. 455. 455. 1,510. 1,510. Tremendous job. Tremendous job from the girl. Email her at Christine at However, Leave the last oi off for savings. Managing Your Band's sixth edition has been out for 15 years, so completely out of date. Please uh, go to Amazon and see what that's all about. Mm. Available in Kindle version as well. Yes. And you know the University of William Patterson's music business program is ranked one of the best in the nation. According to? Billboard magazine and all of their affiliates. Yes. And as we mentioned at the top of the hour... This is the five and a year season five and a half. I can't believe it. Yes. Very excited. We have some great guests. We have a Mike Mowry from Outer Loop Management who's going to be on in seconds. And you can tell that he's on the other line and we can't hear him yet, but we can completely tell that Mike is sweating profusely. He's like Robert <laughs> Hayes in airplane. He can't even see oh, the yes. sweats coming down. <laughs> and then uh, right after Mike, we also have next week, Ro- who's coming in? Who's coming? Maybe the big, no offense to Mike Mowry of Outer Loop Management and Outer Loop Records, but probably the biggest guest we've ever had, and I don't mean he's tall. He is tall. Oh, is he? And not that tall. But who is it? It's Rob Light. Who is Rob Light? Rob Light is the head of music for CAA, Creative Artist Agency. Yes. And he is known as one of the strongest music industry personnel in the live sector of uh, the business yes and we're very fortunate to have him come on yeah and we just received confirmation today yes so that's very exciting yeah it's very, very exciting. exciting so thank you for listening and good how night did we, how did we See, get him we got him through you and your connections oh. with with uh as you like to say brand x another university where you worked right for like he, six months before you came here, 36 years 11 ago. years. Yeah, 11 years. It's he was 36. a, uh, yes, he was a former student. <clears throat> right. And um, he's 110 years old, so what does that make you? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Tired. <laughs> <laughs> but um, boom, psh. Right. Speaking okay, of, let's get Mike. Yeah, I was going to say, Mike, are you there, baby? <laughs> I believe so. Yeah, and Mike Mowry. Mike Mowry, everybody. Yes. It's great to have you, Michael. Thank you so much for being May we call yes, you Michael? You, Mike. 
You can call me whatever you'd like. All right. By Mike, Michael, something in between. Whatever floats your boat, my friend. Miguel, okay. Miguel Nari of Auto Loop Line is on. Yes. So, all right. So, you have Dr. Esteban Marconi and myself. Yes. Dr. Esteban is going to be Well, welcome aboard, Mike. Thank you very much, Great doctor. to have you I here. Have a problem with my shoulder. Is there something you can... <laughs> well, I hope he doesn't use that uh, prefix anymore. Anyway, Steve is fine. So um, I think I want to start by asking you that most of the your clients, I would assume, have not had real formal management before they come to you. Yeah, that's a pretty safe bet. Sometimes they've had some form of management and they've moved over laterally. Right. Uh, much of my career has been spent uh, developing artists or artists that have developed on their own um, and then have needed needed somebody that can kind of help continue to foster their growth. Right. So what is the what's the first question I ask you in the sense of, uh, what do they need? Why do they come to you? I mean, what really do they really think need. they need? Yeah, I mean, most of the time what they think they need is something to keep them, you know, something to allow them to go up to whatever they've defined as the next level. Okay. You know? Because what we get here is when they ask, bands ask Dave and I, and they ask us, uh, we need management, we go, why? And they say, because we need to get more gigs. And, of course, that's what management is really not supposed to do, but uh, everybody does it on the in the early days. But do they come to you with that sort of, uh, we, we need to work more? Yeah, I think oftentimes they might not even know exactly what they need, but mm -hmm. they, feel, they feel as if they're stuck in some capacity or they're right. not progressing as quickly as they would like. Um, you know, they, most of them have... They take themselves seriously. Uh, they've done uh, they've done as much as they are comfortable doing. Mm -hmm. It's what you know what they know how to do, and then they're looking and saying, "Okay, you know, most of them have gotten some sort of validation, uh, but some not." Mm -hmm. They like, "Okay, we we're getting validation and doing the things that we're comfortable with." So considering we don't really know how to do what 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 is next, let's find somebody who can help us with that. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, what would turn you off at the first meeting, uh, an answer by them, that you would just feel you don't want to work with them? You know, I mean, there's, there's a number of things that might do that. It, it's interesting because most of the time I go in giving artists the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. you know, what I've learned over the years is, you know, many times artists feel that they're ready to take the next step when maybe they, they aren't. And mm -hmm. so there isn't one specific answer, but it's kind of getting a gauge of where their dedication lies. And, you know, this has really changed. I've been doing this for 15-plus years on the management level, was a tour manager prior to that, and played in bands prior to that. And, and I've really sort of seen, you know, what those answers, what, what they looked like early on was me actually believing when someone said, I'm willing to, to do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. I kind of took it at face value because 
I knew when I was in a band and when I was out tour managing and when I started my company, I was willing to do whatever it took. So I kind of thought everybody was like, yeah, if they come in and they say that, there must be just like me. But now I know that that's not actually the case. Many people want to be want to think that they're willing to, to, to do whatever it takes, but inevitably their actions kind of indicate differently. Yeah, uh, that's a good way to put it. Why do you think that is, though? Why do I think that it, that? Why do they it, not do what it takes when they? Well, because doing what it takes is really hard. Ah. Mm. You know, and, and and so I think that oftentimes they just don't know. They don't have the experience that you know you guys have, and that that I have just by doing this to know. Well, yeah, you, you're. What they can see in front of them, they think they're willing to do, but there's so much actually beyond that. And oftentimes, you know, what I've really seen, and especially with the developing artist stuff, if I start with kids or, you know, high school, college age, they may or may not be in high school or may not be in college, but they're, they're of that age, you know, they, there's a certain threshold, it's usually about 25 years old, that I have found that if the kid's still at home living on the couch in his parents' basement, typically they sort of say, hey, I, I gave you the benefit of the doubt. You know, we let you drop out of school. We let you go do this thing for three or four years. That's usually when somebody hits 25. But now it's time to get out of the house. Um, and typically, the reason the person is still living at home is they're not making enough money to, to get out of the house. Yep. Uh, so they're faced with that first real decision of, oh, crap, am I willing to, to really be put through the ringer to, to, to give this thing a shot. You know, many of us who have toured, you know, throughout the world, will, you're willing to sleep on a couch when you're on the, you know, on the tour, but when you come home, you want those creature comforts. And once your mom and dad kick you out or whoever it is, you know, uh, that's where a lot of people, I think, kind of fold their cards. And then the next step for me, if, if, if an artist breaks through that, then it's that 29, 30 year mark where on social media they're seeing all their buds getting married, starting families, mm -hmm. or whatever, getting that real promotion at a job where they're driving a nice car and they're looking around saying, holy crap, I'm still eating, you know, backstage crappy catering and getting a $10 per diem. Uh, I got to do something else with my life. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Now, do they. Um what then turns you on right away when you when you meet a group? Is it that passion, that enthusiasm, that willingness to just do anything, and you they make you a believer? Well, it's it, it, that is part of it, but it's that they they've done some of that themselves. That passion has has been expressed on their own in a unique capacity. Mm -hmm. um, they're doing something that is actually connecting most of the time. Uh, have a vision of, you know, hey, look, I this is where I see myself. This is, you know, I can't quite connect A to Z. You know, I've gotten myself, you know, to from A to whatever, G. How can you come in and help me, you know, expand on this vision and, and kind of direct it? And, and that's really what, you know, I, it's typically even like a charisma thing in one of the per people, and oftentimes I needed to be the, the front person, you know. I have made the mistake over the years of having 
a very driven drummer, a very driven bass player, a very driven guitar player, and I've got a singer who's talented but isn't all in. They think they're all in, but, but really, when you do this long enough, when I've done this long enough, I can discern whether or not that person, because that's really what carries, you know, if we're talking about rock bands or metal mm -hmm. bands, which is predominantly mm -hmm. where most of my career is, that is what makes or breaks something uh, from, from really connecting and having longevity. Mm -hmm. So then at what point do you realize, I got to pull the plug, I got I to gotta bail on these guys? Oh, usually I realize it far, <laughs> far, far too late after I've given mm -hmm. everything that I can. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, part of what I, I, you know, I love to try to help people live their dreams. You know, to me, the business is not just a business. It's not, you know, I, I like the personal connection and I have prided myself in giving a lot of younger people the opportunity to give this thing a shot and you know part of what i'm describing in terms of these traits some of them are honed and built upon as time goes on so if i go back to let's say i find a, a band where they're 20 years old by the time they're 22 or 23 they they may have you know just developed some of these traits um, on their own. And so they're ready to take that next step. And so, you know, sometimes you get in, you see some of these things that you think are, are going to manifest, you know, if you continue to, to put your energies and efforts into it and you're six years in and, and you realize, uh, maybe this isn't connecting, but you've done so much work. You know, it's that old adage of you're, you're sitting there at the poker table. I mean, mm playing the cards you're just waiting for is it the river is that the card that everybody waits for you know whatever the card is that you're just waiting for that oh man is there that that chance that shot in the dark that that you know slim percentage that's that all we need is the right the stars to align the right way one night and you know we we break out and that that has happened you know, sometimes people do get lucky. I mean, they've done mm -hmm. all the preparation to be to be ready for the quote-unquote luck. But, I mean, look, the artist that I'm having the most success with right now is a band called Ice Nine Kills. I've been managing them for seven years. Mm -hmm. They've been around far longer than that. When I found them or when, you know, it, it presented itself for us to work together seven years ago, yeah, I think... Singer was very charismatic, very driven, very passionate. He has honed that stuff very much so in the past six or seven years. And with the release of their their last album in October, something really connected. You know, but if I ran this thing by the numbers, you know, if I gave every band five years and they had to hit a certain number, they would have probably been dropped. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that's what I love about the you know, we're in the business of music. As much as there are plenty of tools for us to view the data nowadays, I still want to believe that there's some subjectivity to it, and that's what allows, you know, some of us to, to yeah, to, to identify talent. Yeah. So what's your background? Uh, well, I my dad was in the military, so I grew up all over the world. Um <laughs> moving every couple of years. 
uh, continued that into college. I went to three colleges, ended up in Santa Barbara, California, <laughs> got an environmental science degree. But while I was there, was was putting on shows and really part of like a DIY kind of underground punk hardcore music community. Uh, played in a in a punk rock hardcore band that toured the world for four or five years after that. What was the name of the band? Called Good Clean Fun. Based out of Washington D.C., uh, my best friend was the singer and main music writer and lyricist, and he invited me to book shows and tour and and to, <laughs> and to jump around on stage with a bass in my hand. <laughs> um, that ran its course, and uh, I got the opportunity to become a tour manager. Um, wasn't really even something that I knew much about, but I was very organized uh, and really loved. You know, this, that was really where I kind of got to see the first part of the business side of it. Um, and then, yeah, as many things happened in my career, if you will, because it is a career nowadays, you know, when one door seemingly was closing, another one did open. And so I was kind of tired of being on the road. I was that guy who was getting into my late 20s, was, you know, as, as, as trite as this sounds, was tired of seeing Paris you know, three times a year, but, but never seeing Paris, you know, what I mean? yeah. like, and, uh, wanted to do some of the things that my friends were doing, try to settle down, start families, you know, do just what I guess maybe people that don't tour all the time get to do, take vacations. I don't know, exercise seven days a week, you know, weird things like that. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and so uh, some friends of mine from Washington, D.C., a metal band called Darkest Hour, they were signed to Victory Records, and uh, they were being put on OzFest 2004. Uh, they needed a manager, you know, uh, somebody to help navigate all of that stuff, and they trusted me. There was a, a number of my friends who started managing around that time. It was a lot of bands kind of coming from the underground and were getting you know, more mainstream notoriety. And so instead of opting for a traditional manager, manager was sort of like a four-letter word Mm -hmm. in the underground, you know, some guy or girl who was just going to come in and take your money. Um, They wanted to go with somebody who they trusted. Um, And so they hired me and... You know, I I was in Washington D.C., not the hotbed of the music industry, but aligned myself with a couple other people there that were doing similar things, and we started a little management company, and you know, just kind of tried to see what we could do. And um, 15 years later, we're still doing it. Mm-hmm. And you put a uh, a label in with this whole full service outer loop. Yeah, you know, the label really came from me on the developmental side and so when you know the distribution platforms like TuneCore and CD Baby and now there's plenty of others but when those emerged and allowed artists to you know essentially put their music up without without a label uh, as a management company we facilitated a lot of artists first releases because I would find an artist that I thought was great was doing some stuff would go around to any number of my friends who were signing bands at their labels, and they'd say, yeah, it's just not quite there yet, you know? And so they'd say, can I see them on tour? And, of course, you kind of need music released to tour by. And so we were sort of caught in this real catch-22. Well, how do we get our, you know, how do we get our music out 
so people will know what we're playing when we go on tour. And so those those operations, the tune cores and the CD babies and whomever else at the time, uh, really became our our friends, and so we helped facilitate a number of self-releases. And then uh, that just kind of manifested itself into us wanting to be able to put more resources into it, because if I'm helping an artist self-release, that's really them funding and financing everything, and many artists were on limited funding. And so if there was artists that we thought we could help, oftentimes we would be able to finance maybe the recording or some of the content videos or hire a publicist or whatever it may be, you know, in exchange for owning some of those rights. And then, you know, we did relatively favorable deals, very short term, where we could sign them for whatever the first release with the idea that sort of the same idea, whether it was being self-released five years prior or once we started the label, the whole goal was to use it as kind of the, the, um, the minor league to allow them to grow enough to where the major league, you know, any number of indie uh, record labels would sign them. So kind of a, a breeding ground, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then you got connected with Fearless Records. We did. So actually the artist I, I mentioned earlier, Ice Nine Kills, uh, we sort of went through this model. We did a, we did a crowdfunded we, we, I used to do a number of crowdfunding campaigns. Don't do them as much anymore, but crowdfunded an EP, um, and then went around to to try to get the band signed. A lot of people passed, and Fearless at the time um, said, "Hey, you know, we we actually, I know you want to start a label. We like this artist. Why don't why don't we do a JV?" And so we did a JV with them for I think we did five or six releases. And then that lasted for about two and a half years. Fearless sold to Concord Music. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that sort of, the timing was our deal was up with them. They were merging into something else. And so we turned around and did a deal with Cooking Vinyl uh, Mm in North America uh, subsequent to that. And so that's where we've done most of our releases since then. Uh, the current setup is we've got our deal with Cooking Vinyl, but we also have a direct deal with The Orchard um, for stuff that kind of Cooking Vinyl has a right of first refusal on. Mm-hmm. And when you say JV, you're saying joint venture. That's correct. Can you explain, um, in, and you don't have to give us the exact terms of, of your deals, but in a joint venture, like one you had like with Fearless, so a dollar comes in of revenue, How how is that split? Well, you know, I've looked at tons of different proposals from, from different partners uh, over the years, and they're all different. But a, a dollar comes in, and what it typically does is goes to recoupment, right? So whatever money we've used to finance, let's use Ice Nine Kills as an example, uh, just because it's easy, you know, we went in, agreed on a budget with Fearless for them to record, agreed on marketing, agreed on all of this stuff, and then... The, it's got to hit a recoupment point. So we almost have a deal just like a band does, in a sense. Yeah, I was going to say, so, so Fearless is the one putting out the money for right. the That's recording. Correct. Okay. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. They're financing it. They're recouping everything. Once that happens, they're accounting to us. We have a separate accounting that goes to the band. Um, I've watched, you know, certain things. I mean, you know, that was different. It was something because we were passionate about the artist and believed in the artist that we were dealing with, that we were willing to take that chance. I mean, there's, there's other deals that are just an override. 
you know, if I go and sign talent to a label and then I'll get a percentage on that, um, you know, there's those types of deals that exist as well, but we opted for the former. And, um, yeah, it, it, we, we had one artist that broke out and a number that didn't. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, everything's kind of cro- crossed in one capacity or another, so nobody got rich. I'll put it. <laughs> yeah. All but right. then, but to then, me, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say. So, from the fearless perspective, um, they're taking all the risk in that deal. You know, what would if if, yeah. if you are cutting the deal with them and I'm them? I'm saying so. So, well, what's the split after recoup? Okay, there's that. Yeah, there is a split, and, and I mean, inevitably, Fearless also had an upstream provision in there, and so this artist, Ice Nine Kills, upstreamed to Fearless, and then when Fearless sold to Concord, that was rolled into that. Explain now, that. Explain what that means. Upstream, upstreaming? Yeah, upstream provision. What did that mean? Yeah, so upstream provision means that Fearless is kind of the, the, the parent label, and we're the, you know, we're the subsidiary. So if, if whatever metrics they're going to use, in some deals... Uh, I don't remember the specifics of our deal. If they hurt, hit certain thresholds, let's just say it's 10,000 sales, right, or 20,000 sales at the time. Obviously, now you'd have some sort of streaming equivalent, or you might have a revenue uh, kicker. But if it hits a certain point, then Fearless is able to take over that contract. It's no longer – the next release is no longer a JV with us. I right? see. They, have no, they, they no longer have to account. There is no split with us. And so the reason I was willing to do it that way is I managed the bands on most of the bands we managed that were in these deals. So take Ice Nine Kills, they were upstream to Fearless. That also meant bigger budgets that Fearless was willing to, to do, and now I manage that artist. Um, so really, in the end, it's, it's been a success story. Right, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So... Do you, um, do any bands have a problem with you being a manager and also part of the label that they're, uh, they're on? Is there a conflict of interest? Yes, that's what I'm saying. You know, uh, there, surely that has arisen. I mean, what typically happens is there, there isn't one at the start and then something gives, if, if indeed there is one. I mean, I, the way I acknowledge conflicts of interest or the way I handle them is acknowledge them. Right. There could mm-hmm. be a conflict here, you know, but inevitably um, I like to shoot things straightforward. I think the challenge is there's just this antiquated idea in the business that they, they should be separate. And I'm not saying that they, they can't be separate. Um, and I'm not saying that, that there aren't uh, advantages to having them separate. That said, there were advantages for us in having them intertwined. Again, if I go back to, if, I, if, if you two have a band and you come to me and I'm managing you and we go shop it around and everybody says, well, you know, we'd like to see, you know, we'd like to see some more growth. And I come to you guys and say, hey, buds, how much, do you, how much money can you put together to go do X, Y, and Z? Record, get a video together, you name it. And you dig in your pockets and, you know, one of you pulls out 10 bucks and the other one pulls out 15 and you say 25 bucks. I say, well, that's not going to get us anywhere, right? Why don't we partner together? I sign you to the label. I'm able to put more resources in because I'm protected, because I then know that I've got a formal stream of income coming back to me. Um, so the idea should be good. The challenge is 
we do have certain artists that then, you, you know, even though it was presented that way, they sort of had a, an idea in mind of what a label would do. And so they would say, well, you're not treating us the way that a label would, you know, a proper label would. <laughs> like, well, that's, you know, that's correct. The whole point <laughs> of this is, you know, if you're going to the single A version of the New York Yankees, you don't get the New York Yankees treatment, right? You've got to build up to that level. But, yes, we did have some times where artists felt that there was a conflict. And, um, you know, it, it, it's just sort of the nature of the beast. Anytime you've got somebody who's involved in more than one thing, uh, that, that, that does have the potential to arise. Now, that brings up a whole other topic about artist management, and that is um, talking to uh, your artists, you're managing them, and then uh, I'm not saying they change, but everything's, the honeymoon period ends, and then they start saying things like um, they forget, just like you said, you know, you you pitch to them, here's how this label thing is going to work in addition to me managing you. Everybody gets it. Six months later, they suddenly don't get it anymore. Um, and now you're dealing with the psychology of the different personalities in a band. There might be a couple who don't care, one who is totally fine with it, one who has suddenly hates it and is riding you all the time. You know, so can you talk about that, the, the interplay and the dynamics of, of you as a manager dealing with a band um, when it comes to the business side and all the different personalities involved and how they deal with what's going on on the business side? Yeah, first let me just say that I'm very grateful that I do feel like I have an unofficial, like, second degree in psychology. <laughs> and that's come solely as the result of trying to, you know, manage artists. Um, you know, what I can say is, it, you know, I try to put myself back into the shoes of somebody who's, you know, typically for the artists I manage in their 20s. And realize that you know there's a lot of expectation they want a lot of things they don't necessarily know how any of this works you know they just they have an idea of how they think it works just as when I go into the coffee shop in the morning and I order the coffee and I get it I have this expectation of how it works but if they don't have coffee you know I don't know whether they ran out of beans or whether they ran out of water or whatever it is right but I don't know exactly how this place makes their coffee and so I could go in and say, well, you know, you should have made it, you know, whatever it is. And that happens a lot. Um, and, and it is the most challenging when you have, you know, I've, I've, I managed a six-member band where every member had an equal say. And I loved that idea. I did love the idea. Uh, it became really challenging because, you know, especially with six members, it's not even like you went, you know, it's an even amount. So oftentimes you get to a three and a three. And, you know, how do you make a decision from there? It can become challenging. I, I can say I've learned a lot in, you know, just by doing it. And if I could put myself back in certain situations, uh, I would probably handle some of them differently, some of them not. But inevitably, there are I, – what I have found is the artists who have – that I've worked with who have – been with sometimes other managers or they've been to labels, ones that didn't really do the best of job. They saw, uh, they saw the poor way of doing it once they've come and worked with myself and many of my peers. You know, you've had many of my peers on. 
and these guys all kind of qualify. They're in the same, you know, uh, wrong. I mean, I listened to the interview with Josh Terry not too long ago. That's a perfect example. Um, you know, this is a guy that knows how to manage. And so if, if you think that he's not doing his job, you're, I don't want to say that you're wrong, but the chances are the guy like him who's been doing it as long as I have is doing it more right than, you know, the person in the band. But that said, you know, sometimes it's just not a good fit personally, you know, personality-wise. And you have to want to call your manager in order to work through problems and get creative. And, you know, I have found that the artists that I I don't have to be their best friend. Sometimes I'm twice as old as they are. But the ones that I kind of really get along with, all the other stuff sort of falls in place. Gotcha. And you did mention your peers. You, uh, I want to give a shout-out to Dan Goldberg from Warner Music Artist Services because he's the one who introduced us three or four years ago. That's so, right. So um, Dan's not listening right now, nor should he. He should be boxing with his son in the basement or something. He's a big boxing <laughs> fan. So um, he's doing that, but I want to give him credit where credit is due. So there's yeah, that. and, you know, Dan's not a manager, but what, there's sort of, you know, like the world that I've managed in mostly is kind of, you know, now gone, the warp Tour, right? But there's so many of us that handle so, a lot of those warp Tour artists, and, like, over the past 10 or 15 years, we've watched artists who come to one of us, you know, we're managing one, problem comes up, you know, this psychology, whatever it is. Typically, it's that the artist isn't, isn't progressing as quickly as they want to, whether it's they never hit a certain threshold or they hit one and now they're falling back down. Whatever it is, they think that there's something outside of their entity that's going to magically make it fixed. They, therefore, have a challenging conversation with whoever's managing them, get rid of them. Someone else in our circle of, you know, I don't even know, 20-plus managers picks them up and Nine times out of ten, the exact same thing continues to happen. It's it's not the manager. And, and, again, this isn't just to give managers carte blanche like we can do no wrong. That's surely not the case. Um, but inevitably, what I found is most of the bands that come with the in with those really challenging psychological uh, issues are the ones where they – it's not working as quickly or as well as they want it to. And instead of focusing inward, you know, to, to rectify it, even with the suggestions of a manager, they want to just focus outward. You know, who's the guy that can take my crappy blue Chevy Nova, because I just watched Beverly Hills Cop once again, <laughs> and, turn it, and turn it into, you know, a Mercedes. And there's not, you know, you're the one that's got to be out there working it on the weekend, you know, whatever it is to, take your crappy blue Chevy Nova and make it into a nice blue Chevy Nova, and then you can trade that in while you're doing other work for a better car. Gotcha. Okay. Um, now let's talk about being a manager and um, making a living as a manager. And I was going through on the label side of Outer Loop Management. By the way, we're listening to Mike Mowry, Outer Loop Management on Music Biz 101 and more, the greatest radio show in the history of radio. And that's, uh, that's according to my mother. And um, as a manager, there are a lot. There are different revenue streams which you get to share in with your artists. And I was looking specifically at the streaming numbers of 
six or seven different artists on your label. And um, Ice Nine Inch Nails Kills is probably, I guess, the best in terms of uh, numbers that you have. But in, in general, the numbers that I see, they're, they're strong numbers in that they're 600,000, 900,000. You have a, a couple artists who have like 1.2 million or 2 million streams. And again, Ice Nine Kills is the outlier here. Um, so where are you making money when knowing that the, the streams are solid, but you're not making a whole lot of money from a band that um, has eight songs that have each streamed 800,000 times, for example. And I'm not trying to criticize those bands. I'm just saying reality. No, of course. And, 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 and you know, it's nice that you've done, you know, looked into it a little bit and, and can we can use this as a talking point. I mean, to me, when I got into management, it was sort of the, well, let me say it this way. I've never had an artist's sales and royalties be a predominant factor in terms of where my artist revenue comes from. And, you know, a lot of where our money comes from is, of course, playing live shows and, of course, selling T-shirts. And that, for most of these, you know, whatever, metal bands, kind of warped tour scene bands, um, lifestyle bands, as some people call them, that's that's pretty much the norm, um, where much of that is coming from those those revenue streams as opposed to, you know, the exploitation of the master rights or the pub rights on on the recordings. Ashley has a question, our uh, engineer, for you. Hi. Um I know, like like you just said, mostly bands make most of their res- revenue through live shows or selling merchandise. And you said you were talking about a lot of Warped Tour van- bands. Now that Warped Tour is completely done, do you see it being an issue for those bands to get, like, more consistent shows? I know, like, a few traveling, like, festivals have popped up, like Disrupt Fest or Sad Summer, but they're not at the level of the van's Warped Tour, at least not yet. So do you see that changing the way you help those bands in the future? Yeah, it's a really great question, and I think one that nobody has the exact answer to. I mean, yeah, you take an avenue of distribution. It's sort of like when CDs used to sell through Best Buy, and then Best Buy goes away. You know, (laughs) it's like, where do you sell CDs anymore? Um, Inevitably, this will be some form of change within this industry, um, you know, what, uh, there was a time when gas prices were hit, they hit four bucks and I really thought it was going to weed out many, many, many of the, of the developing bands, but never, nevertheless, like where there was a will, there was a way and the bands just kept finding a way to do it. And I think that's going to be the case here where, you know, that the idea of being a, a young guy or girl you know, 15, 16, 17, going on the road and giving this thing a real shot, that isn't going to go away anytime soon. And so where there's a will, there is a way. And whether it's Disrupt, which I don't think had a very successful track record this summer, um, Sad Summer, which, you know, I think was in a little bit more moderately sized rooms and and maybe did, you're going to see, yeah, who... Where are the opportunities, or is there something that you know none of us are even thinking about right now or in five years, 
And so I'm eager to see kind of what does materialize um, during those terms. But, yeah, that's that's the million-dollar question, Ashley. So does that make you also look harder at your data, whether it's your streaming data or any data you're getting from any promoters you're working with that they're giving that to you, um, in terms of where you can play and really digging deeper and even looking and saying, you know, we're, France – for whatever reason, France is like killing it. Like we are, you know, we have more listeners in France than we do in the United States, at least for these tracks. And, and it looks like Germany's, you know, do you, are you looking more internationally knowing that it could be even more expensive, obviously, to go over there? Does that open your mind or eyes to we got to go find more places, more markets? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, one of the things, you know, as a guy who grew up with a father in the military and lived all over the world, you know, I, I lived in Germany and I lived in Korea. Like, I've always had a global mindset. Um, and, and my band, you know, when we were playing, you know, we would take the money from our profitable markets, which were the U.S. and Europe, and go we towards South America, we toured Australia. We, you know, we did all of those things because we realized that the earth, is not flat, but so I've always had a global approach with my artists. Um, that said, due to the to the financial constraints of yeah, getting to some of those places, there is, in my mind, uh, the right time to strike. Uh, you know, you, you kind of got to have a secure foothold in at least one market where you're profitable in order to take some of those risks in those other markets. But yeah, the data is beautiful. I mean, it really is. It's not an exact science, you know, just as, uh, again, I like to use sports metaphors because I just think they're really easy and relatable. I mean, you know, you you got a guy who hits 300 at baseball. Well, that means he's going to, you know, hit three three out of ten times. It doesn't mean that every time he comes up he's going to whack, you know, the ball the way that you want him to. And just because markets indicate one thing on one platform doesn't mean that it's one-to-one, you know, for let's say tickets um certain countries might just stream more um so we definitely utilize all of that stuff i think it's getting more and more um you know as as people are as experts data scientists if you will are really looking at things it's and apps are coming in and and there's services that are coming in that are really allow you know guys like me who really want to focus on how do I grow the brand of my artist, right? I don't necessarily want to be in the weeds every day on the data. I can be, but it's, you know, it's nice to have someone who can come in and really look at that stuff and say, all right, well, what does it actually mean? Um, but yeah, data is, you know, we're playing Moneyball over here. If you ever saw, you know, that movie or read that book about the Oakland A's baseball team, you know, where they essentially got a bunch of, you know, a bunch of players <laughs> based on their statistics, and I think they went all the way to the World Series. Actually, no, they did not, unfortunately. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, I've, I've read the book 50 times, and um, it's a good movie. Brad Pitt's good for me because he's older than me, but he still looks good. So I'm <laughs> using him as my uh, role model, <laughs> my I physical love it. role model. <laughs> Um, let's see. Can we do, uh, Ashley, are we done right at nine? Is there somebody right after us? I mean, technically it's supposed to be me right after this. Oh, okay. Um, so I, we don't want to tread on Ashley's. Yeah. Just, uh, can we do, I'm going to do, um, 
some lightning round. We have we got a lot of tweets from people. And um, I could go on, and I'm probably going to have to call you someday and just talk with you because I have a whole bunch of other stuff. But um, I think we should get to some tweets and read those. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's leave a little, you know, meat on the bone for, yeah. you know, for the listeners. Okay. And this has been awesome. Thank you guys for inviting me on. And, you know, I love the show, and I think what you guys are doing is such an amazing thing. It's, you know, to me it's all about information and access to information and you know, part of what we try to do at Outer Loop, I have a coaching platform as well that, that, again, sort of like I may not be the data scientist expert, I realize that there's a lot of information out there, and when you're young and this stuff is new to you, or even when you're experienced, there's some help in, in being in a community where, you know, others are, are kind of digging through uh, this the same problems that you are, and so we've created a platform that educates but also allows for some community, so check that out at outerloopcoaching.com there we go yes people should and uh, if you go to outer loop you have some videos where you talk about touring and you uh there's some blog posts up on your website about um agents and four questions to ask an agent that somebody work named paul works with you yeah paul and i work hand in hand he he and i i I love it because paul is a guy that was in the music business and now does something else and he's still intrigued and and so he calls me and picks my brain and says, hey, what do we do? You know, here's my qu- almost like this. Here's my question. And so then we talk and he says, walk me through all this stuff. I give it to him and he comes up with these beautiful blog posts and videos. So Nice. Um, okay. So people should definitely do the research, find you on LinkedIn as well. All right. Yeah. Ashley's going to ask you question number one. Then I'll ask a question. Then she'll ask a question. Blah, 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 blah. Go. Perfect. All right. This is a question from Sam. Do you ever get a day off, or would you say your job is 24-7? I mean, I I do get days off. Uh, That said, I'm oftentimes not fully off. Uh, 24-7 is this idea that I thought sounded good, as many managers do uh, early on. But if you don't set boundaries and don't allow yourself some some time to yourself, uh, I've found I get burnt out. So, you know, I've got an artist in Europe right now. They're nine hours ahead of where I am in Los Angeles. Uh, last night at midnight, I was fielding calls and texts because it was nine in the morning and we needed to get some stuff done. So I do that when it's necessary. They're not in Europe all the time. There's not always problems to be solved. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much available uh, if and when the shit hits the fan or the Uh-oh. Hits me. <laughs> the Live stuff, radio. The stuff hits the fan. <laughs> there we go. The stuff. <laughs> The The stuff, that's right. The FCC doesn't care. Um, All right, next question for you. Um, From uh, Jaka Dimension, would you say that joining a label risks a band's authenticity? No. Good. Next. (laughs) There we go. All right, this is one from Amanda, and it's what do you feel is the most organic yet efficient way for DIY artists to grow their following? Connection in whatever capacity that looks like, a combination of getting out there and playing live and connecting with people, as well as whatever you can do to manifest and kind of corroborate that on all of the various social media platforms. But I think what I've seen is the the most, the, the best fan bases are ones that really feel connected to the artist. Okay. The Fab J wants to know, what social media strategies should artists use to get their music noticed by record labels? 
That is a really challenging question because it depends on so many things. I think what I would say is concentrate on writing the best music possible and then having genuine fans help you by spreading the word as best they can on whatever social media platform. I mean, what, really what I've found is there's no, there's no shortcuts. You know, they, they might look like shortcuts for a minute, but inevitably, you know, even if you've got a, a lot of likes and a lot of uh, shares, those that the powers that be that are signing artists at labels, uh, they're ultimately going to determine whether they think something is is good or not. Because in this age of the internet, we've been through it enough where the numbers themselves never really end up uh, being the, the being as worthy as uh, what they look like uh, if there's not the music behind it. All right, Ashley. All right, this is a question from Leo. The, there is a fine line between the professional and personal relationships with an artist or band. Where do you draw the line? Has the professional relationship with an artist ever been affected by your personal relationship with them? I'd say it's always done on a case-by-case basis. Um, you know, it's challenging. The first artist that I managed was one of my best friends. Uh, I managed that band for 15 years, and, you know, we at times struggled to, you know, it, it helped in a lot of ways, and it also hurt in a lot of ways. But for me, everything's about communication, and, you know, it, it a lot of it was a learning process. You know, now that I'm older uh you know i've like with the singer of ice nine kills he and i are, are i would consider us friends but work is first and foremost i'm at the stage in my career and you know many of the artists that i work with are, are wanting to be at the stage in their career where uh you know it, it needs to be professionalism first great okay uh paul wants to know um what is the most effective way to tour nowadays in a van no. <laughs> Very good. Boom. boom. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's still the same. Start regionally, you know, branch out from, you know, have some success locally if that's possible. I've watched artists from certain markets actually do better in, you know, a market 60 miles down the road or even, you know, two hours up the road. But find one, two, three markets that really work for you and just kind of move outward from there, trade shows, do all of that. I don't spend a lot of time at that level any longer. Most of the artists that I work with, you know, we're fortunate to kind of be at the booking agent level, but I don't think any of that stuff has really changed too much. You've got to start somewhere, and you might as well start close to home. Okay. And then real two real quick questions for me. Uh, contracts. Do you do contracts with all of your bands? I do. I learned the hard way that, uh, for me, a contract allows us to be on the same page and gives me the security that all of the work that I will do will be protected and gives the artist the security that uh, the same thing, all of the work that they're doing and we do together, there's a, there's a straightforward agreement on how everything will work. Do you include a sunset clause in your contracts? That I do. Okay. And uh, in your genre, in the, the metal, hard rock genre that you have, um, what about sync deals, sync opportunities? Are, are there 
opportunities there? Are they few and far between because of the genre? Very few and far between. Um, you know, I had a good friend that worked at an indie label for a long time, and he would call and talk about all of the syncs that they were getting, and I would just talk about all the merchandise that we were selling. And, uh, you know, it was sort of none of his bands were selling any T-shirts, and none of my bands were getting any syncs. You know, I've got an interesting placement that, that, that for Ice Nine Kills that I can't talk about that'll air uh, uh, next month, and it's really cool. But it's, it's you know, I mean, there's stuff on on the places where you would expect with this type of music. You know, WWE, you're seeing some of that stuff, wrestling, this more lifestyle stuff. But, you know, sometimes there's movies, sometimes there's trailers. But it really is, you know, this is by and large an acquired taste. Um, it's not uh, what most filmmakers are, are, are looking for unless it is what they're looking for. And so um, it doesn't mean that the opportunities don't exist. They're just uh, they're, they're pretty challenging to deliver. And is that something that you're doing on your own, or do you have somebody who you uh, give the sort of uh, carte blanche not, you know, to try and go out and pitch on your behalf? Yeah, it, it, it's not something that I'm doing on my mm-hmm. own. I mean, where I find I'm most effective is working hand-in-hand hand with the artist to really hone their vision and try to, uh, you know, deliver larger opportunities as a whole for many of the things, including booking concerts, doing the business management, all of those things. We're hiring specialists, the legal component. I'm managing the team. You know, I'm the one that's looking after the relationships with the merchandise company, the record label, the PR person, the attorney, the business manager, the band's crew. That's where I am disseminating all of the information and making sure everybody's doing their job. But they they are experts in one component. Doesn't I'm not trying to, to limit them in any capacity in terms of what they're capable of or their intelligence, but they're specialists, you know, and I, I'm the CEO along with the band members, that is, is making sure that all of those specialists are working and doing their best to, yeah, really help us grow in line with the vision that, that we work on day in and day out. Okay. And I think we need to end it there. I, I mean, we do. I don't think I know. Ashley's saying we have to end it there, so it's not a thought at all. We have to. We're being forced by the FCC because of the bad word you used. Um Listeners of the podcast will get to hear that word as well because uh, podcasts, we can do whatever we want. So um, we should thank Mike Mowry. Ashley, are you ready for us to thank Mike Mowry? I am ready. All right. Mike Mowry! Mike! Mike Mowry! Miguel Mowry! I pulled away from the mic so that way it wouldn't hurt your ears, Mike. I, I love it. My, Mike, Mike and Mike, I, I appreciate it. You guys have been great. I really do appreciate the opportunity. It's always fun for me to talk about this stuff. I'm incredibly passionate about it. And thanks for having me on. Let me know when the podcast is live. We will. Thank you again. Thanks so much, Mike. We'll talk to you again. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. All right, Ashley, that was Mike Mowry. Uh, our listeners don't know that Marconi left halfway through because he had uh, to go out on assignment. But I wanted to say hello on his uh, to you and to Marconi from Emily Case who uh, tweeted in a hello, and it never really fit in <laughs> properly. So hello, Emily, of the band Switch Mob. And uh, we should let people know also, um, Switch Mob, Zach Matari are opening and playing with uh, another band called Kicking Sunrise at the Dreamwalk Fashion Show this Sunday, September 15th, at the Gramercy Theater. There are only about five tickets left available, so if you want them, buy them. Otherwise, on the podcast, uh, you can't buy them because the show already happened. So you should listen to this podcast and all our other podcasts 
Uh, Music Biz 101 and more. We've been on Brave New Radio. You can find the podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, and the iTunes. And we want to thank Marconi for not being here anymore because he would have just interrupted and ruined everything. Don't you agree, Ashley? Don't don't answer. Don't answer. Don't answer. And we want to thank Ashley Veltner. Ashley Veltner! Ashley Veltner! <laughs> thank you, Ashley, for being here. And, of course, I'm your professor, David Kirk. Philbin, at the end of every show, we do not say hello, do we? Ashley, do we say hello at the end of every show? No, that would be silly. That would be silly. No, very good. At the end of every show, you know what we say, Ashley? We say adios! Oh, she got the lights on, open her eyes. When I fall through the cracks, she can be a piece of mine. I was in a mood and she put me in a vibe. Oh, she-